We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Menconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today, as usual, is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hello, Gavin. Good evening. And also with us in studio, we welcome back to the show frequent contributor Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Ross, thanks for being here. Good evening. Uh, So, quick apology. Obviously, we took last week off for the Dragon Boat Festival. Kind of forgot to mention that to you guys uh, the week before. Got a couple of emails about that, so uh, sorry that we forgot to mention that. But uh, we are back to normal this week uh, and will be for uh, months and months to come. So uh, we will remember that next time. Anyway, on the show today, uh, we're spending the whole first half taking a look at this week's political news. There's quite a bit of it involving uh, cross-strait relations, domestic politics, all that stuff. Then in the second half, we look at the outpouring of condemnation following the release of a video in which a self-proclaimed citizen journalist is seen calling on an elderly veteran to go back to China. And we'll round out the show with a look at Taiwan's energy options as the opposition to nuclear power gains critical mass. Uh, Before we get to any of that, though, uh, a lot of folks in the international community are, of course, uh, discussing the suicide of an American man uh, who killed himself in Zhanghua County Courthouse right after receiving a four-year prison term uh, for drug charges. Uh, He's been identified in local media as uh, 41-year-old Tyrell Martin Marhanka. Uh, Definitely a gruesome, tragic piece of news. Uh, It's got a lot of people uh, in the international community here uh, talking, kind of going over the event and uh, what it could mean for uh, Taiwan's prison system, Taiwan's judicial system. Uh, and of course, it, it really does hit close to home for uh, a lot of us in the international community. Uh, you're never more than two degrees away from anybody here. Uh, but uh, we're not going to dwell on this one uh, too much for the show uh, because th- there's really uh, not much commentary that we can add. Uh, it's just self-evidently a really awful, tragic event. Uh, and I think we're going to have to leave it at that. But uh, our thoughts and prayers uh, are certainly with Mr. Marhanka's family. Uh, okay, so with that... Uh, we're going to move now, as promised, to this mesopolitics. Probably the biggest story this week, uh, former President Ma delivered a pre-recorded speech to the Society of Publishers in Asia's Awards for uh, Editorial Excellence Ceremony that took place in Hong Kong. Uh, now, he pre-recorded that speech not in Hong Kong uh, because the presidential office decided to turn down his request to attend the event. Uh, We're going to back up uh, for just a second uh, and get into why the presidential office has any say in where uh, former President Ma goes. This all comes down to a piece of 2003 legislation called the uh, Taiwan's Classified National Security Information Protection Act, basically saying for the three years after uh, former head of state leaves office, they need to apply for permission Uh, to go overseas. Uh, He didn't get that permission. Gavin, what was the rationale from the Thai administration? The rationale was they were concerned about his personal safety and the possibility that he would leak national secrets. And this, of course, Ma... Ma did a live stream teleconference to the event in Hong Kong, and Mm -hmm. before he delivered his speech and went into his spiel... He actually was rather critical of the Thai administration here for for saying this, not for banning him from going to Hong Kong. And he made a bit of a quip in basically looking back on his rejection, 
being based on the grounds of Hong Kong was dangerous and he was protecting his safety. He turned round and had a quip that basically said he didn't know Hong Kong was such a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Now that... Well, that, hit a bit so of a sour note, given other did, events this week. That did turn itself on its head, however, for mm-hmm. Mars critics, mm-hmm. because, of course, one of the missing booksellers arrived back in Hong Kong this week, and, of course, they were disappeared some time ago from Hong Kong, and he came back and said that he was told what to say in Beijing by his people there, and to admit that he was doing things wrong in the selling the books that were critical of the Chinese government, which mm-hmm. is why he was disappeared from Hong Kong. So, of course, critics of Ma have said, well, maybe it is a dangerous place because Beijing is in charge and people are disappeared there. Yeah, but right. the key question here, Gavin, is whether or not Ma Ying-jeou, as the former president, faced a personal security risk in well, Hong I'd Kong. Need, right? course, the, the, what, the booksellers, course, the booksellers who, who, are, who, are, who are marketing books that are critical of China obviously are a target for, for Chinese authorities. Now, why would Ma Zhou face a security risk? Right. Well, uh, that I think it was a, a, a nice little one-two that uh, Ma was served up there, but clearly uh, not getting to the real substance of the matter. Um, very quick, before we get to the actual substance of the matter, uh, Ma also received a fair amount of criticism uh, for not mentioning human rights uh, or, you know, human rights concerns uh, in the speech that he delivered. He was more talking about the 1992 consensus ties with China, stuff like that. That's what he did. He talked about his his belief in the 1992 consensus being the basis for cross-strait ties. And he also once again touted his eight years in office as reducing tensions across the Taiwan Strait, bringing greater stability to the East Asia region, and for signing 23 agreements during his eight years in office with China. All right. So, I mean, basically what this boils down to is he filed his itinerary to go to Hong Kong with uh, the, the presidential office. Uh, it was a seven-hour itinerary, uh, and uh, you know the, the 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 rationales that have been given from uh, the Taiwan government. I mean, I I've I've never had to plan myself a uh, former head of state's visit. I've never had to plan security for anybody, but they seem a little flimsy. I mean, I, it, it's hard to take it all that seriously. And and Ross is nodding his head. Well, uh, again, what, was there a personal security risk to mind, Joe? Uh, probably not. Uh, and was they were a, saying was, that they, they they didn't have time to work with the Hong Kong authorities to uh, ensure his security. Well, then they should have decided that sooner rather than a few days before. So mm-hmm. I, there's also a question here about uh, the the speed or lack thereof with which the presidential office issued its decision, you know, issuing it only four nights before. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the trip was to take place rather than just making a, a decision quicker. You know, there's, I don't, I don't think the fact that it was, well, it, a, it was, it was a, a holiday the week before is, is a valid excuse for not making a decision. These are national security officials. They're supposed to be on call 24 hours a day. But the second issue here is, you know, this risk that Mai and Joe would disclose uh, confidential or top secret information of the Taiwan government to uh, some foreign authorities while he was in Hong Kong. Uh, there's precedent, at least for Mr. Snowden going to Hong Kong and doing that uh, with, with the U.S. confidential information. But uh, again, there, there, as you said, it could be flimsy that there was a risk that Mai and Joe would do this within seven hours, which includes the travel time back and forth to the airport, checking in for the return flight and, and making his speech at, at, at this event. You know, when, when was he supposed to have sat down 
with the Chinese authorities and disclosed all this secret information from Taiwan. Because of course he was, he he did before he went. In fact, after he when he first applied to go to Hong Kong, of course, he did make a great spiel about how his itinerary was so busy and the seven hours was such a short time to be in Hong Kong. He didn't even have time to see his daughter who lives there. Oh. Uh, it could be true, it, but it just bolsters the argument that when was he supposed to, during this brief have, trip... Have met with his handlers from Beijing, basically. There you go, right? <laughs> Maybe and, he was going to blink out more his code during his speech. Maybe that's the idea. And, and how, how about this, Gavin? Even if he did meet with his handlers, what what would he have disclosed that, that could be so damaging? Well, obviously, he wouldn't have done that anyway. I mean, the, the government banning him from going was ridiculous, and I totally agree with you, Ross, on that one. I was just being facetious <laughs> and playing the devil's advocate there. So we've got a little bit of consensus there. I mean, my sense is probably from the DPP's perspective, and I, I, I guess I'm just speculating, but it it seems uh, from their perspective, they just don't want the past administration going around and uh, to be seen as speaking for Taiwan. They kind of want to put uh, a pin on that administration and uh, basically take away any uh, ability that he has to set policy or, or, or frame uh, international dialogue about Taiwan. That's what I see there. I mean, do you but see something could, else? Well, but he could do it by video conference anyway, as he eventually did. And in fact, while he was president, President Ma frequently did join international conferences via video for you know, various political diplomatic reasons. He wasn't allowed to go to Washington or other capitals and make a speech while he was president. Uh, so doing this by video is, is not new. Tsai Ing-wen will probably do it in the future as well to it speak is coming, about her own policies. It is coming pretty close on the heels of you know him leaving office. I mean, is it is it unusual for uh, a former president to this quickly already go out into the international arena and start uh, you know making statements? This, this will vary by country. You know, in, in many countries, you could use George W. Bush as an example. Uh, he's taken a very low profile mm-hmm. after leaving office, and, and well, he had to. Well. <laughs> Maybe he was. Could he go anywhere? But anyway, coming back to Taiwan, same question back to Taiwan. I believe Li Donghui, when he left office, did travel very shortly after leaving office. That's right. So there is some precedent there. Of course, that was a friendly government. The government of Chen Shui-bian was a friendly government to Li mm-hmm. Donghui. Yeah. Uh, so it would have been unusual for them to object. And as uh, well, and the law as, wasn't there until 2003. Correct. Yeah. Uh, but but there probably would have been other basis. I mean, they're, they're the mm-hmm. government. If they wanted to ban him from traveling, they could have mm-hmm. found a, a legal basis to do so. And one could argue here, being the devil's advocate once again, that the DPP government remembered 2004, of course, when Lian Jian failed in his election bid and decided to pop off to China shortly thereafter. Not being a former president. Well, but former not, vice but president. Being a, a former vice president, and, did, and he did go to China... And, of course, there was a big ruckus about what was he doing in China. So, well, that, I mean, maybe – I mean, I don't know what they did. I'm not in the government. But that could have possibly been in the background somewhere of that, hang on a minute, Lian Zhen went to China. This all happened. Maybe we should not let Ma go to Hong Kong because the same thing could happen. Well, he didn't go. Unfortunately, those nuclear launch codes that President Ma was going to disclose are safely <laughs> still here in Taiwan. All right. So we can all rest easy. Uh, we're going to move on, though, uh, very, very quickly. I don't want to get into this in depth, but uh, Ma actually did win one this week. Uh, there was a case brought against him by uh, and Ming, uh, basically trying to buy, bar him from leaving the country, uh, and uh, court rejected that. That was to do with the 2013 spat with Wang Jingping, of course, wasn't it? Yes. Um, this Ke Jingming is the DPP legislative whip, and he had accused Ma of uh, basically... 
He accused Ma and the then Prosecutor General of colluding with information and releasing information about the then Legislative Speaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, bottom line is the court was considering whether or not, as that case moves forward, uh, whether or not Ma is a flight risk and should be barred from leaving the country. But the court ruled that there was no evidence to prove that anybody divulged any information back then. And the court said something about it, it was all based on Kerr's own statements. <laughs> so does that does that end the case? Pretty Well, I, I guess they said he could appeal. He can appeal. Yeah, Kerr yeah. can appeal. Okay, so uh, you win one, you lose one. Let's move to the other uh, Taiwan leader that is planning a trip overseas. That being President Tsai, she is actually scheduled to embark on a nine-day overseas trip uh, from Friday next week to July 2nd. Uh, During that time, she's set to visit Panama and Paraguay. uh, And perhaps uh, even more interesting to some, uh, she's going to make stops at two U.S. cities, those being Miami and Los Angeles. Uh, So once again, uh, this is another chance to see how the world is going to treat President Tsai. Uh, Are they going to afford her all of the uh, dignities and uh, niceties that a world leader is generally afforded? Or uh, is it going to go a different way? Uh, You know, just generally uh, a chance to see how the world is uh, feeling about Taiwan leadership. Uh, And there may even be some uh, meetings with Chinese officials, so even more telling. Uh, And uh, a lot of questions about how that's all going to go. But we know how that's going to go because the headlines one day this week on a Wednesday said, if President Tsai Ing-wen meets with Chinese officials while in Panama, she will act normally. She's going to be cool about it. They use the word normally. Mm -hmm. Because normally is open to many, many, many different arguments about what is normal. But she's not going to be wearing a sponge bobsuit. That that we can rule out. That would not be normal. normal. We can rule that out. Uh, so, yeah, no, she's going to be a cool customer. She's going to go there, just be normal, tying one, just be herself. I mean, that's what uh, most the advice that I'm given when I'm meeting Chinese officials. Just be yourself, Keith. Gavin, is, is, is there a risk that she'll disclose some confidential information and maybe she should be banned from traveling? The snark factor is getting pretty high in this episode. I don't know how much more of this we can take. Yeah, but apparently, the, the quick, very quickly, um, she's going to Panama and Paraguay, like you said. She's going to oh, she's going to to participate in the inauguration party, I guess, ceremony mm-hmm. of the expanded Panama Canal on June the twenty sixth. But China is not sending its head of state to Panama because they don't have diplomatic ties. And apparently the head of China's transport ministry is going. So if she does meet a Chinese official, it will be from the Chinese transport ministry. A heavy hitter, uh, as they say. Uh, well, they have lots of cars there. Well, that's true. That's a good point. That is a good point. Uh, so, 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 Ross, uh, what, what, what are your expectations for this? I mean, is this uh, going to tell us anything about uh, Thai's standing among world leaders? Well, as far as the stopovers in the United States, I would expect them to be relatively low-key and, and follow the, the pattern of Mai and Joe's stopovers more so than Chen Shui-bian's stopovers, which at times frustrated the U.S. when Chen Shui-bian started to conduct uh, rather high-profile activities, speeches, events with the Taiwanese community. So I'd expect Tsai to be a little bit more low-key, uh, probably meet with members of Congress just like Ma used to do when, mm-hmm. when he stopped over in the U.S., although we have to keep in mind it is a very busy political season right now in the U.S. Uh, so the availability of people to meet with uh, Tsai Ing-wen during these stopovers might be limited. Um, the, the more important thing here is is really the long-term relationship with Panama, which is you know, due to the canal and, and Panama's role in the global economy, one of Taiwan's most significant remaining diplomatic allies. And 
the the canal zone has a heavy involvement by Hong Kong and Chinese companies, mm. and, and the risk you know, is that Panama would be one of the first targets for China to encourage to switch diplomatic ties. Isn't it run by a Chinese company? That's Panama right. Canal now? That's right. So uh, the, the, there's a huge risk here that she's making this trip, and then shortly thereafter, which could be one year, two years, whatever it is. Panama does break off relations um, due to pressure from China, and, and that would be very humiliating for Taiwan. So, of course, we hope that doesn't happen, but it is a significant risk in making this trip personally. So a lot on the line here. Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, we should also hope that the you know, the media and the public are, are supportive of this trip and they understand that it's you know, it's not a waste of taxpayer money for, mm-hmm. for the president to make these trips. It is a very important part of maintaining, maintaining Taiwan's status mm-hmm. in the world. Um, but the, there is this, this significant risk that Panama is going to be one of the first targets of Beijing. My money is on no news really comes out of this. I mean, uh, Tsai Ing-wen so far has really just, we, we, you kind of know what to expect, and she delivers that in general in most of her, at least, you know, public statements and public dealings. Well, this trip is, is about just going and just yeah. being able to go and attend as the president of the Republic of China. It's, it's not like other bilateral visits among countries where there'd be a series of significant trade or other types of agreements signed. Mm. So there's nothing between Taiwan and Paraguay that we should expect to come out of uh, her visit there. She'll probably act normal with them too. We we, we should hope so. I'm not sure if she speaks Spanish, but uh, (laughs) uh, I'm sure they speak excellent English there. There we go. All right. Well, uh, we are going to have to round out the first half uh, right there, leave all that politics behind. Uh, When we return, we're going to be talking about a different kind of politics, ethnic politics, uh, and how they're shaping up in the era of DPP governance. We'll talk about the Hong Su Chu video and the controversy it sparked. Then Taiwan citizens are giving a big no to nuclear power, despite warnings from energy authorities over tight supplies this summer. We look at how tight it's really going to get and what options remain in Taiwan's energy mix. All that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined in studio by Gavin Phipps and Ross Feingold. That's one of several videos in which self-proclaimed citizen journalist Hong Su Chu tells elderly men, mostly men who came to Taiwan during the KMT retreat from China, to go back to China. Uh, these videos were published on public television services uh, POPO. Uh, it's basically uh, a place for citizen journalists to post some of their work, share uh, some of their insights on Taiwan. Uh, and in this case, most of them are really just of her berating elderly men and asking them to, to go back to China. Uh, she says a lot of other nasty things in them. Uh, among them, she says, you should go back to China because Taiwanese cannot take care of you, uh, Chinese refugees anymore. She also says, we have contributed more than you people. You people came to Taiwan to gnaw on our bones. Uh, so a lot of anger being expressed right there. Uh, as soon as this went, uh, I guess, public, as soon as, you know, the national media here picked this up about a week ago, uh, it kind of exploded. Uh, Gavin, tell us a little bit about the controversy once that picked up wind. 
Yeah, apparently the, the Hong lady, who apparently, of course, works for the Taiwan civil government, which is one of the a, a very, very, very small political party that advocates that the government in Taipei is not legitimate. Right. They actually uh, issued some uh, official documents this week, which is a whole other story. But anyway, go on. Well, they transpired not to be very official at all. Right. I mean, they might as well have been written on bar napkins and drip mats, really, mightn't they? But never mind, that's another matter. Anyway, this, this, this woman, Hong... Yeah, she faced the ire of lots of people, in fact. She complained apparently her home was egged mm. in Kaohsiung. Mm-hmm. And also the offices of the Taiwan civil government also were basically egged. And they basically disavowed her. They basically said her comments were nothing to do with us, so stop throwing eggs at our offices. Right. So, yeah, very interestingly, uh, both political parties, you know, we saw leadership from both parties kind of come out and uh, denounce... Uh, Miss Hong and the videos that she's been making. Uh, and we even saw President Tsai Ing-wen and uh, KMT Chairman Hong Shouju uh, share each other's posts on the issue. So uh, a kind of a rare uh, coalescing coming together of uh, usually divisive political parties. Well, one could argue that it was set up anyway. I'm obviously, the woman went to the park in Kaohsiung with her own agenda. She basically went to the park to insult people. Mm-hmm. which is not really a news story. It's basically someone going to the park and insulting people. Right. Whatever your political leanings are, that's all it basically was. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, one other thing that came out of this week uh, is a, a proposal from the KMT to uh, pass anti-discrimination legislation. It didn't seem like it got that far, though. Well, anti-discrimination legislation is never going to get anywhere, is it, anyway? You're basically, what one person calls an insult, someone else is not going to call it an insult. I mean, it's all over the world, really, isn't it? I right. Mean, you know, it's... And then, of course, the, KM, the KMT saying that it's insulting us. You cannot. And, of course, the KMT have been technically, you could argue, and some people could argue, have been insulting a lot of people since they came here. Okay. Which is technically Hong's argument, although she did go around about it in a rather asinine way. All right. So uh, getting some of uh, Gavin's political leanings right there, some insights into uh, that worldview. Uh, but to broaden the conversation a bit... Uh, and to maybe talk a little bit about what this incident uh, says about this particular moment that we're in, in terms of uh, ethnic relations here in Taiwan, uh, we have on the phone right now Brian Hugh. He is a founding editor at New Bloom, uh, which is an online publication bringing Taiwan news and current events to audiences around the world. Uh, Brian, first time on the show. Really glad to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's an, it's an honor. So first up... Uh, let's, we already touched on this a little bit, but, uh, let's draw this out even more. You've been covering, uh, this incident, uh, in New Bloom, uh, and you discussed it at some length, how this incident has been, uh, politicized, uh, on, on, on both sides of the political divide, both, uh, green and blue. Uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, that aspect of things. Yeah, so I would say the, the pan-green political camps, such as the DPP and Tsai Ing-wen, I mean, they want to come off as backing away from kind of ethnic identity politics, divisive ethnic identity politics against Weishenga or people that came over from China or, or descendants from people who came over from China. Um, on the other hand, though, the KMT is trying to use that as an opportunity to play up the kind of card of the ethnic card that they're being targeted by the DPP and pan-green political forces on the basis of identification with China or ethnic descent from people that came over from China. So, you know, that's, that's the reason why I think Tsai Ing-wen would share a Facebook post by Hong Xiaozhu. To um, kind of say, take some air, to take some wind out of that argument? Yeah, exactly. To come off as bipartisan fair. Um, on the other hand, you know, the KMT would like to play up the, that, you know, they're suffering discrimination. So they've kind of really tried to emphasize this incident. Um, that's the reason for pushing for legislation 
Um, that's also the reason for doing kind of public things. Like, you know, Hong Xiuzhu went and visited a bunch of veterans in Kaohsiung. So it's interesting that you're saying that because I think uh, some... Uh, observers would look at this moment as uh, a moment of kind of solidarity for everybody in Taiwan coming together and saying, you know, this kind of discrimination, this kind of uh, really nasty rhetoric is not something that we support. Uh, But then, uh, you know, following uh, your analysis there a little bit, uh, perhaps uh, that points to more div- division hidden under the surface uh, that, uh, than that uh, commentary would suggest. Mm, I think that's very true. Um, yeah, on the surface it might appear like it's an opportunity for different political camps coming together, but beneath that's a lot of political contestation, I think. Um, so from the, the Pan-Greens, they want to come off as, you know, beyond these kind of ethnic tensions. But on the other hand, the KMT, is, that's, that's, that's why they would share something by Hong Xiuqiu and so forth. Um, but then, on the other hand, the KMT is really trying to, really trying to kind of push for it. I mean, I think that they they still do maintain a lot of identity politics, and now they they want to act as though they're the victim. So, you know, on the surface, maybe if you look at it from afar, it does seem like they're coming together. But beneath that, you know, it's still the same old tension. Um, I mean, it also points out these kind of problems are just still kind of hanging around in Taiwanese society. Now, this may be something uh, difficult to kind of get a, a real feel for because we're making uh, massive generalizations, but. I mean, how much uh, traction do you think that uh, these various uh, political stances are are, are going to get? Uh, Are there uh, people in Taiwan that when they see uh, this sort of video, uh, especially uh, maybe folks that have uh, family ties to China, came here in the last 70 years or so, uh, are there a lot of people that would feel personally victimized when they see uh, this sort of uh, rhetoric? That's a good question. I mean, obviously there will be some people, um, I mean, particularly from, let's say, deep blue families. Um, but I do think that a lot of people kind of were willing to just, you know, look at Hong as just kind of a crazy random person that posts online videos. Um, I don't think that it would provoke such an enormous response. I mean, I, I do think that, um, I do think that in some sense, present Taiwanese society is kind of beyond very, these kind of divisive ethnic politics for like the general society. But, you know, there's always going to be some people that kind of very, that react to it and, you know, they react to it differently. I mean, some people will just be upset at the ethnic discrimination, but other people will actually take in a very, very defensive, you know, pan-blue direction. Now, a word that we haven't even used in this conversation yet is uh, Weishengren. Basically, that could be translated as uh, out-of-the-province person, uh, generally refers to uh, folks living in Taiwan that came here in 1949 or later. Um, is that a word you think? I mean, I, I hear uh, a lot of my Taiwanese friends use that word all the time. It doesn't seem to be charged with that much venom in general. Do you think that that's a word that's going to uh, fall out of favor, become one of those uh, words that becomes too divisive, that it almost becomes sort of a, a curse word or a slur? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think that is kind of like a descriptor. I think people do tend to use it as like a, a kind of neutral descriptor very often. You know, a lot of people are mixed between, you know, Ben Chengren and Wai Chengren. Also, um, Ben Chengren being people that uh, have lived in, the families that have lived in Taiwan uh, before 1949. Yeah. Also, just, you know, the fact is, like, I mean, it is kind of a background thing, or sometimes it is also a class thing. So there are kind of, like, different cultural things coming out of this. Like, you know, there are stereotypes about, you know, people from Taipei, you know, are generally Wai Chengren and things like that. And, you know, stereotypes of things in the South being mostly Ben Chengren. Um, I mean, that's that's just kind of a descriptor. I don't. I think that you know, it isn't usually charged, or especially for young people, isn't very, you know, it doesn't really have a negative meaning. Say. Hmm. All right. Uh, now, just to kind of round this conversation out a little bit, uh, I'm going to toss things over to Ross for just a second. Um, uh, this story got picked up uh, internationally uh, and in China as well. 
how do you think that this is going to play uh, to both the government and uh, the citizenry of uh, China? Well, the challenge will be the the perception that Taiwan wants to go a separate way and that there's a large number of people who do see themselves as separate from China and, and are drawing this distinction. And, and as we've been discussing, if there's any side of the political divide in Taiwan that's going to have people, not necessarily the leaders, but but supporters who, who take this view, it's going to be people who support the DPP. Uh, given the Weisheng population is no longer homogenous after 60 years and so many uh, people who might have a partial background of, of uh, a family member who came from China. But, but in the 21st century, uh, it's, it's more likely that both their parents or, or only one out of four grandparents might have that kind of background. Mm-hmm. So if there's anywhere it will come from, it'll probably be come from the green side. And, and uh, you know, it gives people in China fear, uh, government media, about uh, the intentions of the DPP or the DPP supporters. Right. I mean, I think that it's probably likely uh, read as fairly inflammatory, fairly uh, indicative of anti-China uh, sentiments, uh, pretty obviously. Uh, Brian, is there is there anything you would add to uh, what Ross was saying there? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, China would try to... Um, I think there was a, one editorial in the Global Times, actually, about this. Um, it, it, it's short, but, you know, it connected this to Taiwan and, you know, attempted to kind of pin the blame for this onto her, uh, painting, claiming that Taiwan is inflaming anti-Chinese sentiment in Taiwan. Um, so, you know, also I did look around a bit, and there were some uh, nationalist responses from, like, internet forums and, like, which weren't very substantive, but, you know... The spin that sometimes the Chinese government goes with is pretty similar to the spin the KMT is going with, I think. You know, there's all this anti-sentiment, anti-Chinese sentiment from the DPP and the pan-green political camp. Mm. All right. Well, we were speaking there uh, to Brian Hugh. Once again, he is the founding editor at uh, New Bloom. Uh, Brian, very happy to have you on the show today. I hope we can have you on again soon. Thanks for having me. I'll be looking forward then. All right. And moving along to our uh, final story for the broadcast show today. Uh, Nuclear power is back in the news in a big way. Uh, after Premier Lin Tron uh, tipped off a bit of a controversy with his remarks that he is considering having the first reactor of the first nuclear plant reactivated. Of course, that was shut down 17 months ago, uh, and many anti-nuclear activists in Taiwan uh, kind of see that as going against the promise uh, to phase out nuclear energy uh, by 2025. So big controversy uh, right there. Uh, so big, in fact, that uh, it looks like the cabinet and the executive yuan are kind of going back on those comments. Uh, the uh, Atomic Energy Council minister this week said that basically there's virtually zero chance now that that uh, reactor is going to open. He talked about uh, all this you know, red tape that it's facing. And anyway, it's set to be decommissioned in uh, two years. So uh, probably on that timeline, there's no way it's going to be restarted. So... A very abrupt turnaround following all of that controversy. Mixed into all of this uh, controversy is uh, somewhat dire warnings from Thai Power uh, that we may be facing power shortages uh, with the heat waves that we've had so far this summer. And, uh, you know, expect some more of that coming soon. Uh, And also, uh, given the unexpected shutdown of Taiwan's number two nuclear power plant. So uh, facing a fairly tricky situation, I think. Uh, but lucky for us, we got a man with some answers waiting on the line to help us out. Uh, joining us once again is Mark Buckton. He is a Taiwan-based reporter who covers East Asia's energy sector for Energy Trade Publications. Uh, Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Keith. 
Now, while you have been covering Taiwan Energy uh, for a bit of time, you've finally made the plunge uh, and actually moved over here uh, to Taiwan. So uh, welcome you to Taiwan. Thank you. Thank you. It's a bit warmer than I'd, I'd hoped for, but uh, it's nice to be here. <laughs> it takes a while to get used to. Uh, well, And that's very apropos of what we're talking about today, uh, giving possible uh, energy shortages. And let's just start off uh, trying to outline some of the challenges uh, that are going to uh, face Taiwan this summer. I already kind of uh, tried to explain a little bit uh, of what Taiwan is up against in terms of energy generation and energy demand. Uh, is uh, there anything that you would add to what I've already said? Well, I think the, the whole issue with the, the restart of the, the nuclear reactor is is something that will upset some people. But Thai Power, for their part, I think they're between a rock and a hard place in many ways. Um, nuclear nuclear power is it contributes only about 19%, 19-20% of the whole electricity requirement of the island, whereas fossil fuels... Um, are 75% of the whole, you know, the whole input needed to keep the lights on and keep the air conditioners working. Um, whether or not the restart could be considered going back on promises to phase out nuclear by 2022, I'm not sure of the exact wording of what was said at the time by the, the government before they, they were elected. Um, restarting it, I don't see that as a problem with phasing out by 2022. But I don't really believe that power or I don't think there'll be any issues with electricity shortages this summer at all mm. um, and one reason I say that is early in the summer the uh, the Linko um, coal fa- coal-fired power plant down in New Taipei City they will once again begin commercial operations mm-hmm. Ta- Taiwan is at a crossroads the the renewables industry is not developed enough Mm-hmm. Um, the solar industry is is woefully shy of any goals of ever becoming productive. So nuclear at the moment, I see nuclear versus fossil fuels as the main issue. Mm-hmm. Whereas most most protesters will probably say it's a choice between nuclear and the green, you know, the clean green renewables option. At the moment in Taiwan, the clean green renewables is just not a serious option. Uh, the infrastructure is just not there. And it's a little bit like nuclear represents, for example, airplane crashes. You know, it makes a, it makes a headline when a plane crashes into the ocean somewhere. But fossil fuels are the car crashes, and mm-hmm. they happen every day, and millions more will be affected by air pollution than by any potential accidents in the nuclear industry. Mm. Right, so that's kind of looking at the short to uh, medium-term challenges for Taiwan. Um, what do you make of, I've been hearing a lot uh, recently from critics who are saying that Thai power uh, is really overstating the challenges that Taiwan faces. And uh, really, if energy was priced uh, a little bit higher, people tighten their belts just a little bit, um, there would be no energy shortages. Uh, And the only reason Thai Thai power is trying to scare people uh, is because it makes more money when more power plants uh, are functioning. What do you you make of that uh, perspective? That's a business issue. I mean, and I think it's, it's quite possible that there is the fear factor going on. Um, of a personal note, um, when I paid my first electricity bill here in Taiwan just a week ago, I was I was laughing at how cheap it was, um, having just moved from from Japan. Um, but you know, the whole the whole issue of whether whether or not Thai power is sort of scaremongering people, that would be something that people need to look at in retrospect, looking back in time. I don't 
see why or how there would be any power cuts this, this coming summer, especially with the new coal-fired power, uh, coal power plant down in Taipei City, new Taipei City coming online. I don't see any reason for putting the prices of electricity up, and I don't see any shortages. So, yeah, the, the fear factor could be there. What, what, is the, what is the timeline that you see there? I mean, how, how many years, uh, if, if we had to give a rough estimate, uh, would it take to uh, make green a significant contributor to Taiwan's energy supply? Well, if you take out, take out the, the concerns of the local populace, um, which is not a good thing to ignore people, but if the government really went for it and installed all the wind turbines at decent locations around the nation, they could. Um, wind will be a lot faster because Taiwan already has the experience and a little bit of infrastructure to uh, to take wind capacity sooner than um, solar capacity. But even then, I would say you're looking at a good 10, maybe 20 years mm. to to get things really, really kicking in. Mm. Um, it's not going to happen in, in the short term. Yeah, I think you made a good point there about the electricity, price of electricity. I mean, I paid my electricity bill this morning, and I just happened to have it in my pocket because I paid it this morning. <laughs> and my electricity bill for the months of April, May, and the beginning of June came to 360 NT, oh, that, which is 10 US dollars, basically. Okay, I'm a single bloke that lives at home, but I do run electrical things in my apartment. I happen to know that Gavin, uh, he, he, he brags about how much energy he uses. He talks about how he leaves hey, the air hey, con hey, even when you're not in the room. Hey, I save money, though. About I got an 84 NT reduction because I saved certain amount of kilowatts per hour. There we go. Huh. But 360 NT for three months electricity. Hmm. I mean, you... Well, if, if, I could, if I could just say that I just left uh, Japan. I was a single guy in Japan. I just got married and I've moved here. I would pay in Taiwan dollars, give or take, $2,500 a month electricity mm. in Japan. So I'm jumping up and down happy here. <laughs> you know, it's great. And the air conditioner is my best friend at the moment. But, you know, I know that's going to uh, have to adjust itself when I take into account my uh, my local salary. Mm. Ross, uh, it sounds like we're kind of hearing there that uh, basically getting nuclear out of the mix just means that there's going to be a lot more coal uh, and uh, we'd be stuck with coal for a really, really long time. Uh, before green energy gets off the ground. I mean, do, do, do you basically agree with that uh, analysis? Uh, that accurately describes the situation. And, and let's not forget that using more coal or continuing to use coal has uh, an environmental cost that we're generally not comfortable with. Uh, it does obviously dirty the air and cause other damage. And frankly, we know that nuclear doesn't do that, although there are obvious risks with using nuclear. Mm-hmm. We don't seem to have the will to make the changes. You know, we've talked about this uh, many times, and politicians have been talking about it. The media talks about it, but where's the will, right? And a new government that's only been in office for a month also doesn't seem to have the will to make the necessary changes. And, and frankly, based on this discussion, it sounds like one of the first starting points would be, despite the impact on Gavin, uh, to raise <laughs> the rates. That, but, that, but, but there's I think no that will to do that. I think that that's the issue that Tsai Ing-wen thinks most about is how will this impact Gavin? But well, Gavin is one of her biggest supporters. <laughs> so. uh, of course, of course, the, the West is electricity bills do fluctuate in Taiwan. In the summer months, they are they are larger. Mm-hmm. But I think 
Since they've started whacking the prices up over the years in the summer months, I still don't think I've paid more than 2,000 NT for an electricity bill ever. Right. And that, that includes leaving my air conditioning on all day, every day. Yeah. Virtually. So power prices could definitely go up. Right. Which I w- would give money to Thai Power to actually develop more energy sources. Well, that's all on the demand side. I mean, that kind of gets to conservation of energy. Uh, Mark, I mean, what do, do, do you think that perhaps for folks that really care about uh, energy issues in Taiwan, is the path forward to really aggressively push the government on uh, developing green energy? Is that uh, as, as soon as possible and moving that timetable up uh, significantly? Uh, do, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I could just mention one thing that Ross referred to. Um, the government, yeah, the government's got to lead by example, in, in my opinion. Um, as you said, the, the government really does need to aggressively push renewables. Uh, being an island, Taiwan is it's a fantastic place to, to develop wind power. You've got a coast of many thousands of kilometers. Um, the issue with solar power is more difficult in Taiwan because there's limited space. And if I'm not mistaken, Taiwan recently set up its first floating solar farm on a lake down in, I think, down in Pingtung County. Mm. And that is one way ahead. But again, the the land issue is a problem. Um, Wind power on land will also be a problem here in Taiwan. We've already had protests about that. Yes, and people don't want it in their backyard. It's the classic uh, not-in-my-backyard situation. We've seen that fairly frequently in in Taiwan. Yeah, that's that's actually one issue where the the areas are populated. But even in the unpopulated areas, um, Taiwan being such a a country known for its earthquakes means that we can't even use the mountain slopes. Mm. The mountain slopes aren't considered safe for the wind turbines. Mm. Pungu! The Penghu government is actually looking to develop its wind turbine generating power system. Because, of course, Penghu is a rather windy place. Windy place, windy power. There we go. And they are thinking of... And apparently the Penghu County Magistrate recently turned around and said they hope to develop their wind power system so much so they can eventually export wind... or export electricity generated on Penghu to Taiwan proper. The last time I think Keith invited me to the show... I, I mentioned something that Taiwan should develop um, large industrial-scale batteries to be able to transport energy from place A to place B. Mm. Um, maybe not necessarily energy produced in Taiwan, but perhaps produced elsewhere in the world where they've got a surplus. Mm. And then it could be shipped over to ta- Taiwan. But yeah, for, for now, the government has just got to get the infrastructure there, look at all the options for renewables, and perhaps not only wind or solar, um, perhaps also geothermal. Mm. Um, down in the south of the island, they do have a couple of small plants developing geothermal uh, geothermal options. So that's another one that could potentially be introduced. All right. So uh, a lot of options out there uh, for the government and for Thai Power. Uh, but uh, as we said, quite a long time horizon that we're looking at. So we're ending things on a little bit of a dour note uh, as we get into these summer months, unfortunately. Uh, but thank you once again uh, to Mark Buckton for joining us and uh, sharing all of that perspective on uh, Taiwan's energy industry. Once again, he is a Taiwan-based reporter who covers East Asia's energy sector. Mark, uh, thanks for being here. Thank you, guys. Take care. All right. And we are going to uh, leave those energy concerns behind and uh, get moving on to our final story. This is our bonus podcast story. Uh, although this is really not a funny one. We usually try to keep these ones a little lighthearted, a little funny. Uh, this one would not fall into that category, but definitely uh, something worth considering today. 
Uh, we've got two musical stories to get to, uh, and we're just going to uh, let the music from this first musical act kind of set things up, get us rolling a little bit. We are listening there to the Puzangalan Children's Choir, uh, and you can hear them sing in Taiwan. Uh, that was at Tsai Ing-wen's inauguration, so you can hear them here. Uh, you can hear them sing uh, on this podcast in a bit. Uh, you'll even be able to hear them sing in Hungary, of all places. Uh, but Gavin, there's one place uh, that you won't be able to hear them. Yeah, Chinese authorities, they withdrew an invitation to the Children's Choir simply because they sang the ROC National Anthem, which you just heard, during the May 20th inauguration. Mm. Which is rather rude. They're children. I mean, you know, I mean, surely Beijing has some etiquette it must follow. Anyway, it yanked the invite to a choral event that was going to is taking place in Guangzhou. Mm-hmm. And apparently the, the, the wee children, who are very young, apparently there's 41 students from 11th grade, from, from 2nd to 11th grade in this choir. Mm-hmm. And they're members of the Paiwan tribe from Pingdong County in the south. And they were one of many groups that were singing along with uh, with Tsai yeah, it, was, it was a stage. On the stage yeah. during the inauguration, there was lots of singers, and the kids were part of a group, and they were wearing their Paiwan traditional clothing. Right. The very, and- very picture. People take pictures of them. There you go. Nice kids singing songs. But apparently China doesn't think so, because China's got the ant with them. Mm. Because they sang the national anthem, so they cannot perform at the choral event in Guangzhou. So they got their invitation revoked. But... People heard about this, and people went, this is so sad. But they're going to perform in Hungary in August. And then the group said, no, we've got no money. We need 1.3 million to film in Hungary. It's a long way. We've got 41 students. We've got a bunch of people got to go with us. We can't afford it. And then there was an outpouring, and everyone went, ah, oh, we'll give you money. So people gave money. There we go. That's heartwarming. President Tsai Ing-wen donated half a million NT from her book royalty revenues to go. The but- Ministry of Education donated some large amount of money for them to go. Mm. And apparently on the choir's Facebook general public, members thereof, were donating money for them to go to Hungary. Well, that's just lovely. And it took 48 hours for them to make that money. Mm. And now the choir's going, thank you very much, but please don't donate anymore. We have enough money to go to Hungary. Perfect. So they're going to be having goulash instead of <laughs> Beijing duck now, one could say. Well, I don't know. That uh, that makes the story a little less heartwarming uh, if we have to think about it that way. Uh, Ross, is, is your the cockles of your heart, are they warmed by this story? Uh, I think the issue here is, is not simply that they sang the national anthem or that President Tsai comes from the DPP. I think the issue is is the policy disagreements with regard to how China and President Tsai's new government uh, frames the relationship between the two sides. So if President Tsai in her inaugural speech and subsequently had, had framed the policy in a way that Beijing wanted to hear it, then the Children's Choir probably would not have been banned from going. So it, it's not simply having sung the anthem that's the issue it's it's the policy dispute that we're now into between but the in, two sides but in terms of ways that china can find to signal its displeasure with the Thai administration with this, a democratically elected government of Taiwan. Yes, there we go. Carry on. Mm-hmm. This seems like one of the ways that would go over worst with the Taiwan public. I mean, if, well, well, if well, they have well, a policy well, of winning hearts and minds right yeah. now, this seems not to be the way to move forward. With fair, that. fair point, but it's but there's precedent for doing this, notably when Chang, Chang uh, 
Kwame May so, so sang the anthem for Chen Shui Bian's nomination, uh, mm-hmm. sorry, inauguration, and she was banned from performing mm-hmm. in China for a while. So it, it, it's part of the standard operating procedure for China. So you know, the people who made the decision to invite the children's choir should have been smart enough to know that there were, they were putting the choir's performances in China at risk by having them sing at size inauguration. So uh, the choir and the children, of course, they're not at fault, but the people in, in President Tsai's team who invited them to sing the anthem, uh, uh, hopefully they identified this risk to the choir. They mm-hmm. didn't think everything uh, – hopefully they didn't think everything would work out fine. All right. Well, a uh, little bit of a political spin on a uh, well, an already political story. So we're uh, spinning politics with politics. Uh, but we did promise two musical stories uh, to lay on you today. And uh, ooh, what's that I hear? Why that could be none other than legislator and heavy metal singer Freddie Lim. Uh, Gavin, he sounds angry. Actually, I, he always sounds pretty angry, but. I'm pretty sure that's just part of his act today because uh, this week he actually has uh, something to be happy about. Yeah, he was actually given an award. He he got the Golden, the Global, not the Golden, the Global Metal Award at the Metal Hammer Golden Gods Awards, which were held in London this past weekend. Monday evening, in fact, last weekend, Monday evening. And he accepted the award from Motley Crue's Nikki Six. Mm. Uh, I have no idea who he is at all, but never mind. He <laughs> praised, and he, during the opening speech, he praised Lim's... Con- I, how, no, don't look at Crue. me like that. I do not know who Motley Crue are. I, do, do I look like someone who listens to heavy metal music, Ross? He's more of a punk rock where guy. Were you, He's where more were you of a punk in the rock. 80s? He was in Hong Kong. I, I, I'm done, mate. I stopped listening to music in about 1983, basically. That's all finished for me. Anyway, anyway I've seen on. your playlist. That is true. Moving on. <laughs> Nikki Six from Motley Crue. He praised Lim's contributions to music and his devotion to the international human rights movements. There you go. And he took the award, and I believe we have a clip of him accepting the award. So in my constituency, the citizens of Dongzheng Wanghua, Taipei! Now we're fucking awesome for electing a metalhead as their representative! Right, so a nice little feather in uh, the cap of Freddie Lin. Yeah, there you go. He's not, and he is actually, of course, a lawmaker in the Wanghua district. And he's also the lead vocalist of the death metal band Thonic, of course as he was talking about on stage in this past clip. And he also, if anyone's interested, he served as the chairman of Amnesty International in Taiwan from 2010 to 2014. Very distinguished position right there. Uh, All right, well, I'm going to leave it up to you guys for a vote. We need to close this show out uh, with some kind of music. Are we going with uh, heavy metal or children's choir? Absolutely, should go with some Motley Crue. Because I think... think it's been a while since uh, ICRT has played some Motley well, Crue. It would be good for Gavin to uh, get exposed to that uh, cultural... Just, right, because Gavin, Gavin could already sing by heart the just ROC play, National just, Anthem. Just play so. Thonic. <laughs> just play some Thonic. All right, so uh, maybe we'll do a mix. All right, we'll figure it out in just a second. Uh, as we are figuring that out... Oh, and I hear the music already coming up behind me. Uh, and as it does come up, uh, we are going to have to uh, round out the show. Uh, please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. Uh, starting from this week, uh, we're going to be playing the show a little bit earlier. It used to play it at 8.30, probably going to be coming in more around 8.20. So uh, just watch out for that. That's to give the show a little bit more time and uh, get more stories in for you. 
You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes, uh, and we've just started posting to the ICRT blog as well. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Hey, good night. Bye-bye. And Ross Feingold. Good night. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Taiwan This Week.